Здравствуйте, товарищи, и добро пожаловать в Power. I'm Roberto. And I'm Brendan, and together we're ranking the Russian rulers from Rurik to Putin. This week, I have no idea. I forget. <laughs> Want to do that again? No, just just tell me what is it. Okay. This week, ruler number four, Olga of Kiev. Oh, right, Olga. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm looking forward to this one. I actually had a few people asking me, are we going to do Olga or not? And I was like, you'll find out. Well, is she the head of the Russian state or was she not? She is the head of the Russian state at this moment, and you'll see why. But before we start, we're going to showcase an ad for our big sister, Battle Royale French Monarchs. Like us, they rank the rulers of a certain area, this time, France. Uh, Brendan and I are friends with Ben, and they helped promote the show when our first episode came out, so I guess it's time to return the favor. They did it on the, their episode of Anna of Kiev, so I thought, you know, doing her, you know, grandmother Olga of Kiev would be kind of a nice way to do it. Interesting. Yeah. It should be starting now. Cue nice French music. Bonjour and bienvenue to the podcast you are currently listening to. Je m'appelle Ben Clark and I host the podcast Battle Royale, where my best friend Eliza and I pass judgment on all the kings and emperors of France from Clovis to Napoleon III. Those who we do not deem worthy will be sent to the guillotine. So subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And join us on our macabre adventure from the Dark Ages to the French Revolution and help us decide who's ahead and who's headless at Battle Royale French Monarchs. That's Battle Royale colon French Monarchs, wherever you get your podcasts. Now, wasn't that a great listen? Uh, you can check out Ben and Liza's podcast after you listen to our episode, of course. I'm sure the Russians will be arriving in Paris real soon. The link to their website and podcast feed is in the episode show notes below. Now we go on to Aunt, or Olga of Kiev. Yes, but before we continue on, can you recap us on what happened to our last ruler, Igor? Uh, Igor did not have a good time. So Igor was the son, Igor I, if you recall, was the son of Rurik, founder of the Rurikid dynasty. Rurik was succeeded by, I guess, his right-hand man, I guess you could call him. Yeah, like his like his cousin, basically. Oh, it was his cousin? Okay. Yes. They're kinsmen, his cousin, so cousin. Yeah, kinsman. Um and his cousin what was his cousin's name again? Uh You really like this name. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Oleg uh Oleg the Seer. Yeah. Isn't it also Oleg the Wise? Oleg the Wise, Oleg the Seer, either one. <laughs> right. So he was succeeded by his cousin after he told Rurik, Oh yeah, sure, I'll definitely turn the throne over to your son. Once he is of age, for sure, wink, wink. And then he just did it until he died. And then Igor took over. And Igor was very much past the age of 18 or whatever the age of majority is in uh, that society at the time. And uh, some bad statecrafting led to him being uh, executed via being torn in half by bent birch trees. If you're wondering how that works, it was like, was it one or two birch trees? Two. Too. Right. So they took some young, spry, springy birch trees, bent them all the way down, tied his legs to them, and then released them. And they tore him in half. Yeah. That's space. You, you remembered a lot this time. I'm pretty proud of you. Yeah, I did remember a lot this time. I was explaining to my parents what exactly I do. 
<laughs> and it was like, oh, I should probably remember. Yeah. So, yeah, so you, you are the audience, you know. Hi, Brendan's parents. I'm not going to say your names out, out loud on the episode because privacy. But hi. Yeah, that's pretty much the recap for the last few rulers. And then uh, I guess it's time to talk about where Olga's name comes from. Olga. Um, I guess her parents gave her that name. That's my guess, personally. I, <laughs> I'm pretty sure it was. So this is a nice thing that uh, we've basically already covered this etymology already. Have we? Olga's name is the feminine form of Oleg. Yeah, Oleg, I figured. That makes sense. Wait, so was Oleg still a common Russian name? Because I know Olga is a pretty common Russian name. Yeah, Oleg's still a pretty common name in Russia. Interesting. Okay. I'm just going to do the etymology because it is the feminine version. So it comes from the Scandinavian name of Helga. And her name means holy. That's pretty much it. Okay, interesting. You'll see how that applies a bit later. Oh, and I suppose we should mention Olga of Kiev was uh, Igor I's wife, right? Yes, you're correct. Yes. Alrighty, so would you like to know about the early life of Olga? Sure, let's go. How much information do you think we have? I mean, this is a woman in the Russian Chronicles. Are we going off the Russian Chronicles here? Uh, we are, for the most part. It's where yeah. all the juicy bits are. If this if this is a woman in the Russian Chronicles, I'm guessing not much. You are absolutely right. <laughs> so, Olga was probably born around 890 AD to a Slavic family. And in 903 AD, she was wed to Prince Igor I. So, that's, uh, and that's 13 it. years. So, is she Olga from the Northmen? You know... People say that's what it is. They say this is the girl you see in um in his dream is like with the crown that that is Olga. Oh, okay. Yeah, so that's what they say Olga is. So it's kind of like referencing that person. I see. Interesting. And then we skip a lot forward in time. And in 943 AD, she gave birth to Sviatoslav, hers and Igor's son. Mm-hmm. She's known to control different estates within the realm and she held the town of Vishkorod near Kiev, the village of Olzichi in the Desna region and quite a few number of villages around the cities of Pskov and Novgorod. So it's like it's around this time she's actually known as Olga Pskov before she's like officially like regent. Okay, interesting. So she was like any other noblewoman. She had a bunch of land under her control as a feudal lady. Yeah, and she was technically like the second biggest landowner in the whole realm. And then, with Igor's death, she became the biggest landowner in Rus. Because she owned the entire country. Because she owns, like... Well, she also inherited some of his lands, too, at that point. Mm-hmm. So, like, she has, like, a bunch of territory around. But this is where we kind of go on. So, things were not going well for Olga. And since the death of Igor has been very unexpected... This left a two-year-old Sviatoslav in place to succeed him. I think that's going to work out for him. Um, I don't know many two-year-olds who are capable of ruling their own bowel movements, let alone a country. <laughs> yeah, so... But here's the nice part. Olga, since she's the biggest landowner and she is the current princess, she was made regent of Rus until Sviatoslav comes of age. So is she a queen, officially? No, she's because it's still a grand princedom of Kiev. So she's still a princess. She's not a queen. Okay. Well, if she's a princess, who's the queen? There is no queen. Okay. I just won't ask. Yeah, because it's like they're not like a kingdom yet, but they're not like a count. So she's not a countess. She's like the grand princess since you're like a grand prince. Okay. 
You know, I'm sure if I read up on this, it would be less confusing, but whatever. It's, it's always confusing. It's medieval politics. True. A few days after the news of Igor's death, Olga was made aware of a group of visitors who had sailed downriver from Dereva. This was a group of about 20 Derevlians that were sent by their leader, Prince Mal, to convince Olga to come to Dereva along with Sviatoslav so that he could marry her and assist Olga with ruling. Hmm. How generous of him. They were waiting for Olga at the bottom of the hill near the river. Oh yeah, very generous. So, And these men were just waiting for Olga at the bottom of the hill near the river. Because like, the fortifications were like, on top of a hill, uh-huh. as you do. It's defensible. She summoned them to the throne room and gave them a very gracious welcome. She knew their intentions and she inquired about their arrival to Kiev. And they told her the news that Igor had been killed by their people because of his greed. But their wise prince Ma offered his hand to her since he was able to preserve the land of Dereva against, you know, her husband. Okay. Olga gave these men a very kind smile and replied, quote, Your proposal is pleasing to me. Indeed, my husband cannot rise again from the dead. But I desire to honor you tomorrow in the presence of my people. Return now to your boat and remain there with an aspect of arrogance. I shall send for you on the morrow and you shall say, we will not ride on horses, nor go on foot. Carry us in our boat, and you shall be carried in your boat. Though the Revlians paid attention to Olga and actually went down, they were very content about their easy victory over her, so they went to relax in their boats mm-hmm. after this. And at, it's at this point where Olga orders her men to build a very large ditch within mm-hmm. the hall she's currently in. So the following day, Olga summoned the 20 Revlians, and they followed her instructions exactly. The Kievans came and carried them on the boats, and they lamented the whole time that they felt like slaves to these Derevlians. You know, they came up the hill with their chests puffed high and wearing their best clothes. And as they approached the princess, the Kievans saw the ditch and they dropped the Derevlians <laughs> into it beneath Olga. So Olga then bent over and inquired if they enjoyed the honor that she had bestowed upon them. Angrily, they responded that this was worse than the death of Igor. I don't know how this is worse. You got dropped in the ditch. Igor's dead. But <laughs> yeah, that's probably the worst thing you could possibly say in that moment. You're tr- you're treating us worse than we treated your dead husband. Yeah, and it's, yeah, it's pretty crazy. It's like, oh yeah, you know, we're still alive, but you just dropped us in a ditch, and like, you're still alive, buddy. She looked at the retinue that she had within her hall, and she ordered them to bury these twenty men alive. <laughs> <laughs> yep, their screams were soon muffled by stones and dirt, and. Olga's revenge against the Drevlians had just begun. Dang. This is... I think it's time... I mean, this is probably a common theme in medieval, but we should, like... Maybe we should consider adding a category for how gruesome their death was. We can get bonus points. Yeah, bonus points. It's like being torn in half by birch trees. That's a particularly gruesome... I don't know. Maybe we need to bring in, like, a medical expert to tell us how painful each of these would be. I mean, so far, all we had is... Rurik died in bed. Uh-huh. Alieg died by being bitten by a snake. Igor got torn in half. <laughs> yeah. Dude, so, so far, Rurik... Rurik is doing pretty well so far. So far, he's the only one who died of old age. So far, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's kind of crazy, because it's like, do you want to add this point? So I don't think, like, we can factor it into their, like, hmm. so, something, but... I don't know. Maybe I'll just keep a running tally in my head of who had the most gruesome death. Because being buried alive is, it's very scary and it's very painful because suffocating is extremely painful. Oh, yeah. Uh, 
But let's continue on with the story if you'd like to hear what more things Olga does. Okay. Olga then sent a messenger to the Derevlians and with a message stating that if the Derevlians really wanted Olga to come to Dereva, they would need to send their most distinguished men so that she could go to Prince Small with high honors. Otherwise, the denizens of Kiev would not allow her to leave. Well, that's so nice of them. Yeah, it not it? Only the best. Only the best for our princess. The Derevlians read this and decided, oh yeah, you know, things happen on the road. The 20 people we just sent earlier may have run into, like, bandits and all that stuff. So they gathered all their best nobles and sent them to Kiev. A few weeks passed, and they arrived into the city. Olga saw the disheveled and dirty state these men were in, and asked them to bathe so they could be ready for a formal meeting with her. She did not want uncleanliness in her hall. And they agreed. And you could see a small twinkle in her eye. The men's went into the sauna, undressed and relaxed, and started hitting themselves with branches to improve blood flow and circulation. I added that bit because that's kind of what you do in the bathhouse in Russia anyways. Interesting, I guess. Yeah, it's, it's a lot of fun. Olga then ordered her men to lock up the bathhouse, and they set it ablaze with all the best Revlian men yeah. inside. I knew it. <laughs> I, I know that this is the one thing that I knew ahead of time. Because I heard about the great Olga of Kiev. Yeah, it's hard not to know about her. She's like one of the big popular ones. <laughs> but in particular, this story about her burying... I didn't know about burying people alive. I did know about burning everyone alive. Yeah. Well... People really underestimated her. The Dr- What are they called? Derevlians? The Derevlians. Derevlians. They really underestimated her. Well, remember, it takes time to get, you know, things across the land. So, like... If things happen to one group, you might not find out about it until a lot later. Mm-hmm. If she sends a messenger, you don't know what happened to your last group of guys. Something could have happened on the road. All right, you know, maybe they didn't arrive, which is why she's asking for us. She sent one final message to the Derevlians, saying that she was coming to Dereva. And they needed to prepare a massive amount of mead in their city of Iskorostin, which was where Eeyore was murdered. She was going to mourn for her husband and hold a funeral feast in his honor. Wow, very nice of her. Holding a funeral feast where uh, her husband's killers currently live. Well, it's, it's a thing you do. It's like a religious thing. Like, you hold a funeral feast to kind of honor the dead. So it's like, she's expected to do this, basically. Right, of course. The Derevians listened to her and they gathered supplies that she wanted, not suspecting that their second set of men had perished. Olga then set off with a small escort, and the journey was very nice and easy for her, because, you know, it was very well protected. She mm-hmm. approached the city of Iskorostin and came up to the borough mound and that the Derevlians had made for Eager, and she just wept for him. It looks like she really did love the guy, so which is, you know, something nice to hear. Yeah, not exactly common in arranged marriages, presumably. And it's at this point that she orders the, the Derevlians and her men to make the mound even greater. So they, you know, they added, like, they made it a bigger mound. And once that was finished, they started the festivities in honor of Igor. Because if you remember what I said last episode, they still buried him with, like, full princely honors. So, like, they did the right thing. Right. Well, I don't know. I mean, they buried him with full princely honors, but they also, you know, there's far more dignified ways to be executed. True, very true. And now and now they're like, oh, our bad, sorry. We'll give you a dignified burial, even though you didn't have a dignified death. Yeah, you have a point there. 
Olga then ordered her men to serve the Derevlians once they had sat to eat. So they were basically waiters at this point. And as the feast went on, the remaining leaders who stayed in Iskaroston asked Olga what happened to the men that they had sent her. You know, this is kind of like, oh shit, what do I say? Mm-hmm. And she responded that they were following her husband's bodyguard. Hmm. You know what happened to her husband's bodyguard? Uh, they all died. They died protecting Igor when they killed him, so... and But, you know, they, they assumed it was the, the bodyguard he had left behind in Kiev. So it's like, okay, cool. They're just taking their sweet time. Right. And the festivities continued like nothing happened. And the Derevlings continued drinking and getting, getting drunker. So, seizing her chance, Olga unleashed her fury and ordered for her retinue to massacre the Derevlians. <laughs> 5,000 men were killed. Wow. Yeah. How big was this feast? This is like 5,000 men that can't all fit in one hall. It had to set up picnic tables outside. Yeah, probably. I, I, I was guessing it's outside because you want to have like the big bonfires and all that. True, true. We, we, don't, we don't know, but I'm guessing there was at least 5,000 Derevlians and maybe more Kievan Rus. But having killed all of these men, she returned to Kiev to prepare an army to put the Derevlians down once and for all. With her large army gathered, the Kievan Rus attacked the Derevlians, and they routed the Derevlian army, who ended up shutting themselves in their cities. Olga approached Iskorosten once more and laid siege to the city. The Derevlians barricaded themselves inside and were rather well supplied, so this could last for quite a while. A year passed, and the Derevlian defense was going well because they knew what Olga would do to them if the Rus army managed to break through. Because, you know, she's killed them three times. But the Derevlians were losing their supplies, and they could not let go of the defense to get more. So they had to wait out to the end. This angered Olga, who then got an idea in her mind. She sent a message to the denizens of Iskaristan, stating, Why do you persist in holding out? All your cities have surrendered to me and submitted to tribute, so that the inhabitants now cultivate their fields and their lands in peace. But you had rather die of hunger without submitting to tribute. End quote. So she's lying? She just She's just asking why they're taking forever. Because at this point, she's like taking over all the other like cities and all the other towns and everything. Okay. So she was not lying. No, she wasn't lying. The besieged city then responded that they would have surrendered long ago and given her tribute... But since they knew that she was bent on revenge, especially against them, as the city that killed her husband, they could not trust her to stay to her word. Understandable. Yeah, very. I'm like, oh, you know, they finally understood after, you know, three times of Olga killing her people, their people. And Olga's response was that she had avenged herself twice, and that the third time she had held a funeral feast. Her desire for revenge was satisfied, and all she wanted was a small tribute. Hmm. Let me guess. Is it a human tribute? No, actually, it's not. Okay. I should have said blood tribute. That sounds way more dramatic. Is it a blood tribute? Oh, I, I don't know. I don't know if it's a blood tribute. Well, the Derevlians offered Olga honey and furs as their tribute since that's all they had left in the city. But Olga denied this. She's like, nah, I don't want that. All I want are three pigeons and three sparrows from every house. <laughs> <laughs> That is a uh, logistical nightmare, it sounds to me. Oh my god, yeah. And then she said, unlike Igor, she's not greedy and understands that there are low in supplies because of the siege, so the birds would suffice. The Derevlians thanked Olga from the bottom of their hearts, and they sent her the birds along with their happy greetings. Mm. Really following in the footsteps. Maybe this is why Chairman Mao ordered everybody to get all the sparrows. 
He was taking inspiration from Olga. Maybe. Who knows? I don't know. But once it submitted and the tribute was handed, Olga told them, you can return to Iskoros then, and we're going to leave the next morning because it's getting late. And the Derevians could only rejoice at their good fortune. You know, things are going well for them now. I'm waiting for the twist. <laughs> Olga handed every pigeon or sparrow to her soldiers and ordered them to wrap a thread around each pigeon and sparrow containing a piece of sulfur bound with a piece of cloth. Late Ooh. in the night, when the people of Iskoristan finally slept peacefully, she commanded the soldiers release the birds so that they flew back to their nests. From a vantage point, Olga watched as the birds returned home and small, bright lights emerged from the city and grew larger and larger. In no time at all, Iskorosan was set ablaze. Okay, this sounds this sounds like BS to me, honestly. But it's cool. Yeah, it is cool. You know, it's way less... It, it's way easier to, I don't know, light flaming arrows and shoot them over the walls. Or flaming trebuchet, giant fireballs in your trebuchets. I don't understand, like, why you have to go through all this Monty Python. But, again... I'm assuming this is just a legend. This is just a legend, yeah. Yeah, thing with putting the uh, the thing with putting wheels on the boats with Oleg the Seer. Again, that sounds like BS to me. But is it fun though? It is fun. Yeah, so it's you know rule of cool, you know. Yeah, rule of cool. The Rus soldiers positioned themselves around the exits of the whole city, and they captured those that fled. Iskoros then burnt to the ground, and the Rus soldiers killed some of their captives gave away others as slaves, and the rest were forced to pay tribute. You know, nice things. Yeah, nice things. This tribute was rather heavy, but we don't get an amount. And two-thirds of it went to Kiev, and the rest went to Olga's land in Vyshkorod. She passed through Dereva on her way to Kiev, alongside Sviatoslav and the rest of her retinue, where she established laws to centralize Kievan authority and imposed further tribute in the region. And it's around this time you see Olga, like over the next year or so, Olga starts, like, going around to all her different holdings in Skolov and Novgorod and around Kiev, establishing trading posts and collecting tribute for Kiev. And at all these posts, she establishes... They improve the trade for the region, because it's, like, nice places to stop and repackage, make sure people can, like, are not, like, in the long haul on top on the river forever. Mm -hmm. and, and it's pretty cool, because, like, at this point, she's also centralizing Kievan authority, as I said. And she's also imposing laws that make it easier for to get taxes and everything. And after the subjugations of the Derevlians, she made them into a Kievan estate. So basically, they are under her personal control now. And she decided to take a small vacation. Hmm, did she? Yeah, so what's a nice place to go to vacation at? Especially when you're uh, in this time area. Constantinople? You got it right on the first one. Nice. She goes down to Constantinople and meets with the Roman Emperor, Constantine VII. Emperor Constantine became quite enamored with her beauty and wondered if her brain matched her looks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I don't know. It's kind of hard to say. Was he aware of how cunning she was considering her activities with the uh, Deruvlians? You know, I don't know. He decided to put her to the test and you know what he did to test her? See if she could feel a pee under 100 mattresses. No, he actually talked to her. What? He talked to her. <laughs> Sorry, I don't understand. What, talking to women? I don't... What is this? I don't I don't know either. I don't know how it works, but... Yeah. And after they talked, he told her that she would be a worthy woman to rule alongside him in Constantinople. Hmm. You know what the best part is? Creates a unified kingdom of the Rus and Eastern, Eastern Rome. Well, that, but 
He's already married. Oh, what? So he wants a concubine. He wants a concubine. Okay. And then Olga looked at him up and down, kind of like, to see if he was actually being serious, and replied that she's a pagan, and she could not marry him, and if he wanted her to be baptized, he'd need to do it himself, because otherwise she would not be baptized. Interesting. And then Constantine agreed because he was being fueled by a very different brain and went to the patriarch to ask for his assistance. The patriarch taught Olga about the Christian faith and she absorbed the information pretty easily. Once deemed ready, she was baptized by the patriarch and the emperor and took the name Helena after Constantine's wife. (laughs) I love it. Oh yeah. A few days passed and Constantine summoned Olga to the court and told her that he wanted to marry her. Olga replied, quote, How can you marry me after yourself baptizing me and calling me your daughter? For among Christians, that is unlawful, as you yourself must know. End quote. Is it not unlawful on pagans? Because, if not, gross. No, because Constantine the VII is her godfather now. Right. And in the Christian faith, you can't marry your goddaughter, because that's your, technically your actual daughter in God's eyes. Oh, is that why? Okay, I didn't know that. So basically, it's, it's his daughter now. And Constantine considered himself outwitted and sent her back to Kiev with many gifts of gold, silver, various vases, all the while calling Olga his daughter. Like, here, daughter, here's some gold. My daughter, here's some silver. Here's some various vases. You know, have fun with all these gifts. Uh, I don't know. The more we ruminate on this, the more grossed out I feel, honestly. Oh, yeah. No, it's, it's bad. It's also a legend, so, like, you don't have to worry about it. Yeah, true. So when Olga returned to Kiev. She came back and got a message from Constantine reminding her of their deal and that she had to send gifts of slaves, wax, furs, and provide warriors to assist the Romans in future battles. Olga responded to him that if Constantine would spend as long as a time with her in the Pochina River in Kiev, as much time she had spent in the Bosporus with him, then she would grant him his request, otherwise she wouldn't. Man, she's really a power player here. Like, she... I mean... You can outwit him by saying, what, I'm your daughter now, aren't I? But now she's just saying, no. Like, just flat out refusing. Oh yeah, she basically told an emperor to F off, which is great. Yeah. And then, since she was converted, she wanted to begin converting the nobility in Kievan Rus. And started off by attempting to convert her son, Sviatoslav. He said no, because he didn't want to be mocked by his nobles. And she told him that if he converted... They would convert as well, but Sviatoslav was 18 who cared too much about what others thought of him. She was pretty sad, and she gave him her best wishes and asked God to take care of Sviatoslav. Sviatoslav probably wrote his eyes. She seems very committed to the Christian faith for somebody who just converted, like... I mean, I don't want to speculate on the reason she converted. I suppose everybody has their own reasons. But it seems to me like she converted out of political convenience. Like, now she uh, has the help of the yeah constantine the seventh i mean she's family to him now yeah which is something nice it's basically you're protecting yourself with like the big guy on the block at that point right and i understand that like probably the vast majority of like conversions in history were political but like she seems very sincere about it for somebody who did do it if it was political which i'm inclined to think that this was legendary Unless we're leaving out a lot of things about her conversion. She actually did convert, so... Well, I know she officially converted. I'm just saying I don't know how enthused she was about it. It, it looked like she was. Um, I can talk a bit about Christianity and Kevin Roos if you'd like. Well, I want to know if she was sincere about it. 
I, I, I think I think she was like she was actively trying to convert people in Roost to kind of become Christians, right? It just, it just didn't work out too well for a few reasons, and I can talk about that now if you'd like. Okay. Yeah. So at this point, a few of the boyars or like the Russian like high nobility were already baptized in Rus, and she's stated to have converted in 955 in the Chronicles. But the Byzantines write her trip as being in 957, so it's pro- it's probable that she's already Christian by this point, and it's also highly likely that she was baptized in Kiev, but was sponsored by Constantine the Seventh, which would lead him to calling her his daughter. Her conversion did strengthen the Christian cause that was starting up in the Rus lands, but it didn't lead to a full conversion. And the historian Vernadsky, who we use a lot, writes that this conversion didn't happen in Sviatoslav because the Rus didn't want to be subjugated under the emperor and the patriarch, and instead wanted their own autocephalous church. Interesting. Yeah, so they, it's the reason why people weren't converting is because they wanted, like, the Church of Russia to be just be the Church of, like, Rus. Like, they didn't want, like, the emperor and the patriarch of Constantinople, like, having control over them, because it would, like, not work well for them. Even now, people are just not a fan of papists. I know, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Check out Pontifacts to learn more about the popes. Yes, I don't think there's an episode on Martin Luther, which would be more appropriate for this discussion, but I don't know, maybe they'll do a bonus episode. They're, they're still in like the 900s, so give them some slack. So Olga's mission in 957 did not bring the desired results, which is when she went to Constantinople, and this made her turn to Emperor Otto I of the Holy Roman Empire, which is neither holy nor Roman. Nor an empire, right. Voltaire! Olga's envoys to Emperor Otto requesting bishops and priests for Kiev were answered, and they sent a monk from St. Alban's Monastery who was ordained as a bishop, but he didn't survive the journey as he fell ill and died. <laughs> so they sent another monk named Adalbert of the St. Maximin's Monastery at Trier, and he was also ordained a bishop, but Olga sent him back because she didn't really like the guy. <laughs> and this may have been because of misunderstanding as Otto was probably trying to put the Rus under his church as well instead of making them an autocephalous church and Olga's failure to secure a national organization kept the Slavic religion in Kievan Rus in place and well under the control of Sviatoslav again like this thing with all these political conversions like it, obviously these people who were under the purview of the Holy Roman Emperor were going to be like also pushing being under his purview of the purview of his church at the same time you know i i don't know what what, there's nobody believes in anything sincerely anymore man it's all about uh convert to my church so we can be under the rule of my church because we do it better than you yeah it's just like what just give them their own organizations man not everyone wants to learn greek and latin like come on yeah exactly I mean, no, nothing bad could ever happen by insisting that every mass is held in Latin. Nobody's going to try to go against that, ever. No, no, absolutely not. Who would ever think that? But, back to the story, because it's uh, a few years passed, and things were rather peaceful. Sviatoslav became a grown man, and Olga passed the throne to her son, ending her regency. And we agreed on this earlier, and that this is where we're going to end Olga's story. Okay, but how did she die? You'll find out. Next episode. Oh, okay. Yeah. I will say one thing, though. Because this will... I want this to be put into thought when we start ranking Olga. Before we start the rankings. Is that 
when she does die, she does become a saint. Right. So and I want and I want to put that into her whole we want I want to add that into her ranking as well. My understanding is that she played a big part in the Christianization of Russia, but so far it seems like what you're telling me is that she didn't actually do that. Well, we'll talk a bit more about it once we get to the the ruler who Christianizes it. This is his grandmother. Okay. Oh, you'll find out. It's still Olga. She took care of him. And if you remember our talk with Trevor on the history of Sacramento, Georgia, it didn't, you know, if one king didn't do something, you know, if one king was against, like, religion, they had, like, a someone in their court that could talk to their son. That made things a lot easier. Right. So with Olga being a Christian and then talking to her son's son, to her grandson, I'm not going to say which grandson, but it is, she was able to talk to him and he's the one who converted to Christianity in his, while he was ruling. Okay. It's basically she opens up the well and then he pours it out, basically. Like, it makes it start running. Sorry, is this a metaphor? It's supposed to be, it's a really bad metaphor. Okay. Because I was a little confused. She, she opens up the tap. But her grandson unplugs the tap, basically. I see. Okay. Yeah, so she gets she gets the force going, but he just unleashes it like... There we go. Uh, anyways, well, I guess we should start ranking. Spezzalne Operatia. Special Operations. This is how militarily successful they are. How well do they do in battle, lead in battle, or have others lead in battle for them? And uh, I'd say she did pretty good. Okay, I'm... I guess we'll have to operate... I don't know. Do we want to count the thing with the sparrows and the pigeons and the sulfur? Because obviously that did not happen. I, 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 I still say it counts as part of the siege of Iskorosten because that did happen. I'm not inclined to give her points for it, to be honest, because it just didn't. <laughs> it didn't happen. Okay. You said, yeah. Okay. Whatever. You, you give her the points you want. But I, I'm, I will not give her points for it. I mean, we don't agree on what we give points for. So that's a nice thing. True. Yeah, so how, how many were you thinking? So, her military victories, I'm not going to count all the times she just tricked everybody. I don't think that technically counts as, like, a battle. It really doesn't, because it was more by surprise, which would be a more compromise. Which, it's like, if I murder somebody on the street by tricking them, that's like, that's that's not like a feat of martial prowess. That's just tricking them. Yeah. Although it is very impressive, and I will do want to give her lots of points for it, but not in this category. Yeah. So the only major military victory I think we mentioned was, okay, she got all those cities, and she successfully conquered the Derevlians in the end. But the Derevlians were already part of Kievan Rus, which is, so she was basically fighting like a group within her country, so she didn't fight an so external she country. She was putting down a rebellion, in other words. She was putting down a rebellion, so like... I mean, a battle is a battle. I don't think if whether it's foreign or domestic. I mean, civil wars are still wars. Yeah. So how many? Yeah, we're gonna have a lot of that in a while. So nice. Yeah. Okay. So we know she won that battle. How like how many other battles did she win? I, I think like that was like the she basically like there was that one battle where she, they were out of the army and then they all went to like hide in their cities and like Iskorovstin's like the main place we see her sieging. So it was basically like. Okay. How many are you thinking about giving So, her? ultimately, she was overall very successful. There's not a whole lot of martial prowess that goes into just waiting for people to, like, starve to death while you're sieging them. Mm-hmm. Um, although that's a common feature of warfare. 
but she was ultimately successful. So I'm, I'm thinking like the number that comes to mind is like an eight ish, but I think that's a little overboard and I want to, I want to dock her down to a seven, I think. Okay. So you're going to give her a seven? Yeah, I'll give her a seven. I was thinking more of a five for myself. Not mm-hmm. because I don't think she did great militarily, but it's just mid, like middle of the way. Cause yeah. she did, she, she did do a lot. That was great. Like mm-hmm. she put them in the Revlians and I do like the stories along, but a lot of those were just kind of like intrigue in more intrigue than anything. Yeah. And, I mean, I see, I see where you're coming from. Yeah. So that's like, so I want to drop her points cause she's going to get a lot more points from me in a different category. So that's the main yeah. reason why. Yeah. Like, um, yeah, I see where you're coming from. It is kind of made because I assume that her armies are simply bigger than others. And I consider it more impressive if she won with a smaller army, for example. Yeah, but she had the whole Kevin Roos behind her. So it's like, right. it's not yeah. too much. Maybe maybe I'll go like a six, actually. Okay. So that's a total of 11 for Spensalna Operatia. Okay. Okay. Uspiech. Success. How successful were they in running their nation? What cultural significance did they leave behind? This is a lot, actually. Yeah, so, I, I guess first things first, how successful were they in running their nation? Uh, I'd say very successful. Um, she successfully put down a rebellion in probably three times on a separate occasion. No. Yeah, four... Wait. Yeah, three separate occasions. No, okay. Four separate occasions, counting the three massacres and the fourth one, which was just winning in a traditional war put down a rebellion in probably the most brutal way possible. A brutality that rivals the brutality of her husband's execution, as a matter of fact. Oh, yeah. And, like, so, yeah, she should, so, points for putting down the, the Revlians. Yeah. Also, her cunning. Her cunning is, like, was her greatest asset here, of course. Yeah, I still I still think that's under compromat, though. Cause it's, it's cunning cunning is under compromat? But there's nothing, there's nothing bad about cunning. Oh yeah, no. Which, like, even against like the story of Constantine the Seventh, so yeah, there's good cunning there. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't, I don't count being cunning. Like dishonesty, yes, that's under compromise. But for cunningness, I do have to give points because I consider that a positive. Uh, honestly, a ten. Yeah. Um. So I actually wanted to talk about a few things about why I wanted to give her a full ten, as well. She implemented a variety of reforms that would prevent the different Slavic tribes from rebelling and killing their leaders, such as they did to Igor. And to further this, she abolished the custom of the prince's winter expeditions for a tribute collection, and instead divided Kievan Rus into a number of districts, each under the authority of a boyar or a local board member who was in charge of collecting taxes. Which I think is pretty good at like centralizing power. Yeah, isn't that like normally how feudal societies work? You have this hierarchical pyramid. The Rus didn't have that at that time. So as as with Igor, the prince would have to go from ta- village to village getting like his tribute. Ah, okay, I see. Yeah, and then she placed uniform taxes onto the whole population of Rus to deprive the local princes of their local authority and curtailed the autonomy of all the tribes. And this did further improve the Grand Prince's centralization. Okay, yeah, so she very successfully centralized her power. Yeah, I think the most awesome thing of all is that after her regency and death, she does become a saint, which has a massive cultural impact, because you see her everywhere. In, like, Ukraine and Russia. Yeah, her... I, I didn't touch on this, like, 
for just for like politics alone, she gets a 10. But for cultural significance, like she is a saint that is cr- partly credited with Christianizing Russia. She she got the ball rolling there. Even though she did not successfully do it, she certainly laid the groundwork for it. And her grandson would not have been able to do it at all if it weren't for her. So that is a 20 for Uspiak. She is the first one to get full marks in any category. Yeah. Oleg the Seer came close. He got an 18. He, he did. He came close. But Olga just, you know, she's she did good work. Like, it's yeah. hard not to like give her credit for that. This is one of my favorite categories here. Tar- like Tarantino levels of revenge. Oh yeah, no, she it was great. Compromat! Blackmail. What dastardly deeds did they do behind closed doors that made others dislike them? I mean, if I were under her... First off, if I was a Derevlian, I would hate her. Oh, absolutely. Certainly a lot of points for luring Derevlians and then massacring them. Luring them under false pretenses and massacring them. So first off, that's, you know, deception. Pretty, pretty scandalous. Oh, yeah. What else? She became a Christian. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. I'm, I I think the easiest way to offend our listeners is if we give her blackmail points for converting to their preferred religion. <laughs> uh, so I won't, I won't say anything about that. I mean, I'm orthodox. I'm fine. Yeah, I know. I know you were joking. Okay, so she gets quite a lot of points for deception, gets a lot of points for killing them after that deception. Again, I'm going to assume the thing about sparrows is not true because that's just too far-fetched. But burning a whole city to the ground is not. Burning a whole city to the ground. That I'm sure she probably actually did. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, (laughs) she kind of turned over a new leaf, so to speak. Yeah, but she's not going to be the worst person to give like full points to in this regard. True. She's not going to... Okay, I mean, let's be real... I mean, I don't know. I think to a certain degree, I mean, if you're taxing somebody, you know, what happens? Okay, so let's go back to Igor. So did he deserve to be executed? Did he deserve to die? No. Well, I think you can expect that if you're taxing somebody. Because think about, okay, you... Triple taxing them. Yeah, triple taxing them. Okay, triple taxing them. What happens? Like, you're already, like, probably starving. And, I mean, it's not war necessarily but if you say no i'm not paying that then i mean violence is going to be involved so Mm -hmm. it is a violent act even if it does not directly involve violence just the threat thereof so can you like reasonably expect to be met with violence once you give the threat of violence i think yeah that's a reasonable expectation to have true she avenged his death yeah avenged the death of a of not a very good guy it is her husband, though. It is her husband. Yeah, I mean, compromat. Yeah, incredibly scandalous. I would have to... I, I kind of want to dock points for, like, presumably renouncing all of the horrible, brutal violence. But I you don't feel know. feel free to, yeah. Doesn't... I don't know. That plenty of, plenty of people who have converted to religion still, like, are horribly violent, even if the religion expressly forbids it. So, I guess I won't dock points. I'm going to give her a full 10 for Compromat. I'm going to give her an 8 for Compromat. Mm-hmm. Not because I don't think she did really good, since I know what, what comes up next, and mm-hmm. like in the future. And it's also, she, she, she was basically just revenging herself on a single tribe. It's not like she did this to everybody. So Right. 
I mean, yeah, granted, if you tear somebody's husband in half, you should expect that to happen. Oh, yeah, no, absolutely. So, like... And I'm... worse. Really, it's their fault for being so damn stupid. Oh, no, absolutely. Yeah, you're, you're right. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how much sexism goes into here, because they were severely underestimating her. I was like, oh, no, like, we killed her husband. She'll never do anything. She'll just marry, and then it'll be all fine. Yeah, that sounds very likely. So I think it is time for... Bonjour, moi. Oh my god! How handsome or pretty did they look? Yeah. So, so um, before I look, we should note that Constantine apparently found her so beautiful that he wanted to marry her. Or not marry her, make her his concubine. Yeah, I, I have two pictures here I want to show you. Well, three. I have three, because um, one's like more contemporary. Interesting. Let me get the... So we're going to... I have a picture we're going to judge her off of. Before we continue on, here is the picture I want to judge her off of. It is this one. Can you describe Olga to us, please? Yes, yeah, so this looks like an incredibly idealized depiction, considering the uh, uh, religion of the person who clearly painted it. I mean, this is a very good painting. I like it a lot. I do too. The colors are really, really pretty. So she's in a... Well, she's in a dress... So it's a white dress. Um, it has the like gold percot down the front. Uh, the dress has a floral pattern. It has a floral patterned uh, yellow, I guess, fringe on her dress, which has some blue floral pattern fringe on it as well. She is holding a very nice cross. She has a black cape on with a pink inside. And she has a uh, white headscarf. With, I think, looks like a gold, I don't know, some kind of gold decoration. Um, it's like, it's like a gold, it's like two gold dreadlocks coming down from her crown. I'm not sure how to describe it. Beads. Like an, it's like a necklace hanging from her crown. Yeah, and she has her crown here, which uh, looks very nice. And it has icons on it. Yeah, yeah, icons. And she has a halo. Yeah, she has a halo as well. Um, so she has brown hair, very... Dark eyes, very red lips, very fair skin with rosy cheeks. Like I said, I'm I'm fairly sure this is a pretty idealized depiction. She looks pretty severe. She's like... I mean, she did kill all those people. <laughs> yeah, she's like sort of glaring at the painter almost. Although I guess in another you could see she just sort of has like a, I don't know, a neutral expression. But I don't know. I mean, I'm I would be afraid of her. So I'm inclined to think like maybe that's what the painter was going for. But I mean, yeah, she is a very beautiful woman in this. So, what do you want to? What do you want to rate her? Got rating women out of ten. Jesus, <laughs> I know. I feel bad about it, but like, yeah. it's like we only have seven women in this whole. Yeah. In this whole shindig, as as of now. Yeah, I I do feel bad, but I mean, whatever. You're doing this with the show, whatever. I'm I'm the number that comes to mind is like an eight and a half, eight point five. Eight point five. I was thinking like a nine personally yeah because it's like you can tell it's because it's stylized but yeah i I think she's she does like the the, this looks great it's fantastic um yeah this is a really nice painting i like it i do too like the use of color the use of color in this is really excellent oh no so is the dress white and gold or is it blue and black (laughs) shut up So that is a 17.5 for Bojemoy, and she's currently our highest rated Bojemoy. Of course she is. Of course she is. I mean, 
I, I think Rurik was probably the most probably was, the most handsome man. Yeah, we rated him in like almost a ten. Almost a ten. Uh, she's she's doubled that score. Yeah, not point sixty six. Almost, yeah. Yeah. So, so I'm gonna send you yeah. some more pictures. Um this is a an art like an artsy thing of her burning everything. What the I mean See that when you see the birds like that, does it make more sense that she tied the thread and to them and all that? What now that I have like this doesn't make more sense? No, it still doesn't make sense. That story is complete nonsense. Yeah, again, uh-huh. again, the order says depicted her as like extremely severe here, which is augmented by the fact that she's surrounded by the burning city that she is responsible for. Uh, you want to? See, uh, and this is, <laughs> yeah, and this is her burning the people in the. The bathhouse? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes, yes. I think I've seen this picture before. This is an extremely minimalist, but uh, I assume that it's her sitting on the throne. She has a red shawl, um, a red and blue headscarf, uh, a blue skirt with a red fringe and red shoes. And I don't know. I could not tell her from a man in this one. That's <laughs> This is how bad yeah. this is. But it's interesting that they depicted... Oh, wait, no, it's not interesting. I was going to say, the bathhouse, of course, they would be naked. But the naked people in the bathhouse burning kind of reminds me of um, uh, Hieronymus Bosch's Garden of Earthly Delights, which is also depicts hell. So the, the title is kind of misleading. Yeah. But anyway. And then this is the uh, last picture. Someone drew this. I thought it was really nice. It's supposed to be Olga and Igor. I thought it was cute. Well, it's, yeah, this is a very sweet picture. Um... Yeah, they give her. They don't. They don't make her look too severe in this one. They give her a very neutral expression. Well, Igor's not dead yet, so that's probably yeah, why. Yeah, Igor's not dead yet. Yeah. Sorry, I don't see this picture's a little inaccurate. Where's the dunce cap on Igor? The what? It. Yeah. No. Yeah. It's completely inaccurate. There's no dunce cap on Igor. Oh yeah. <laughs> true. 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 Oh. We're gonna spend a lot of time on this show dumping on Igor. Huh. Last one. Well, they just uh, sovereignty. How many years were they on the throne? And Roberto, how long was she on the throne? How long do you think she was on the throne for? I'm literally looking at it right now. Okay, fine. yeah, I forget you have access to the... <laughs> <laughs> so, I have access to the same Google Drive. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Olga was the regent from 945 to roughly 959, putting her total years on the throne at 13.33 years, giving her a total score of 5.31. Wow. Yeah. And, uh... Wait, how many years is that? 13? 13.33. So, 13 years and 3 months. Pretty good. Pretty great. And, you know, as, as a female regent... So far, Oleg the Seer still has her beat, but, I mean... The, the other guys, they got to wait until they died. She had to wait until her son came of age. Yeah, as I said, a female regent, the fact that she's able to last this long is fantastic. And that puts her total score at a whopping 71.81. Wow. Yeah. I gotta say, I mean, I am... I am a big fan of her. Like, oh, she's fantastic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like Oleg the Seer. Okay, he was pretty cool, but like Oleg, Olga of Kiev. Oh my god, Olga of Kiev was just fantastic. I was like, this. I was reading this, and I'm like, she's gonna get high scores. Like the only thing she scored badly on was probably like was literally her time on the throne at five point three one, and then everything which is, is like, even more impressive. Yeah. And like with what eleven in special operations, twenty in success, eighteen in compromat, seventeen point five in Bojemoy. Like she did, well, she did so much better than her other people. Yeah. Oh my god. Yeah, I love her. So me too. So now, since we both love her, um, we, I need to ask a question. 
Is she going to party it out in the Kremlin, or is she being shipped off to the Gulag? She is one of the all-time greats. Easily. She's going to the Kremlin. Sorry. Yeah, Kremlin. I forgot Kremlin is good. <laughs> Kremlin is good. She is going to the Kremlin. You know, cue the... Go, Olga! Her number one after topping Oleg yeah. the Seer. She deserves it. <clears throat> she deserves it. It's gonna be difficult to top this one. Oh no, for sure. There might be there might be people who come close, but like Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm well we're rooting for her. I'm gonna be I'm I'm gonna try not to like deliberately dock points just so no one overtakes her. Uh but I mean it just depends on the stories, you know? <laughs> yeah, I make no promises. Well, Olga, congrats. You are off in the Kremlin. You're going to party it out with Oleg, which is... I, I find it funny that we both have versions of the name Helgi and Helga. Yeah, that's In true. the Kremlin so far. So, and now it is time for our poem. Oh, right. Awesome. Cool. This is a another poem by Alexander Pushkin, because if you haven't noticed, I really like Pushkin. And it is called... K asterisk 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 or in english two asterisk 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 because it was supposed to be uh, like a secret love letter ah uh, okay so this is actually written for anna petrovna kern with whom pushkin had an affair with in 1825 nabokov who was determined that pushkin was untranslatable ridiculed all attempts to translate this poem well you know i think he has the right to say that he does. Yeah. <laughs> Pushkin is very untranslatable, uh, but we try. So I will start reading. This is actually my top poem by Pushkin. Yapomio chudne vinovenie, predam noi yavelasti. Kakmimo lietnie vedenie, kagieni shistoi krasati. Tom lietnie kurusti biesna diejnoi, trevoga shumnoi sueti. Zvuchal menie dorga gola sniejni, isnilis milie certi. Shli godi. Bod parriv mi atiejni, rašreal prejnije mječti, i zabil tvoj golos nježni, tvoje nebjesnije čerti. Kluši, v mrnake zatočenja, tja nuli stihadni mai, bez božstva, bez dohnovenje, bez slioz, bez žizni, bez ljubvi. Duše nastala pravuždenje, i vota pijatja bila sti. Kak mimo ljednje vedenje, kak geni čistove krasati. I srce bjorca v upojenje, i dla njevova skresli vnov, i božstva, i vdohnovenje, i žizen, i slozi, i ljubov. Your turn, buddy. To Blank by Alexander Pushkin I keep in mind that magic moment when you appeared before my eyes, like a ghost, like fleeting apparition, like genius of the purest grace, and torturous, hopeless melancholy, and vanity and noisy fuss. I've always heard your tender voice. I saw your features in my dreams. Years passed away, and blasts of tempest have scattered all my previous dreams. And I forgot your tender voice and holy features of your face. In wilderness and gloomy capture, my lonely days were slowly drawn. I had not faith, no inspiration, no tears, no life, no tender love. But time has come 
my soul awakened, and you again appeared to me, like ghost, like fleeting apparition, like genius of the purest grace. My heart again pulsates in rapture, and everything arouses again. My former faith and inspiration, and tears, and life, and tender love. Aww. Sad to know that he did that for a fling. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean. Yeah. I mean, the guy honest. got around. We're going to talk about him in a few months, but he got oh. around. Um, credit to the translator. The translator is Dmitry Smirnov. Yes, thank you, Dmitry. To get more direct contact with us, feel free to access our website at czarpowerpod.weebly.com. That is W-E-E-B-L-Y. There you can find the show notes, pictures, bibliography, and vote on whether you think Olga deserved the Kremlin or the Gulag. It also has links to our social media, which is just at czarpowerpod. Czar is spelled T-S-A-R. And where can they find you, Brendan? Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Foster underscore writing. Whenever I like get around to getting published, I link my stuff on there. So go follow Brendan, complain to him about anything you'd like, or complain to me, or tell us how great we're doing. And if you'd like to support the show and help us expand and grow, feel free to subscribe to our Patreon to get access to bonus episodes for both Czar Power and the history of Sarcadevelo, Georgia. If you'd like to do something that's free, leave a review on your favorite podcast host, be it at Apple or on Spotify. And that's a Dosvidenia Tovarishi from me. And that's a Vlosprozdaet Parazitov from me. See you next time. See you next time. For Christ's sake. <laughs> you find this honor to your liking. <sighs> Unbelievable. <laughs> why? Just why? I know. Uh, okay. She's a saint, for Christ's <laughs> sake. <laughs>